Well, good morning. Glad to see you all here with us. If you're here in person, if you're joining us online, I'm going to give that just a second. (laughs) Glad that you're here with us uh, for uh, church today. Uh, We are in the middle of a series called Christmas at the Movies, where we've been taking a look at uh, some of our favorite Christmas movies, or at least mine and Brad's. We didn't really care what yours were uh, when we started this series out, but uh, Take a look at some of our favorite Christmas movies to see what we can learn about our walk with Christ in them. And uh, some of you already know what we're talking about today. It was up there on the screen just a moment ago uh, about one of my, it is my favorite Christmas movie, one of my favorite movies just in general, period, the movie Christmas Vacation. Uh, starring Chevy Chase and Beverly D'Angelo. Some of you are here because this is also your favorite Christmas movie. Some of you are here out of sheer morbid curiosity, how in the world I'm going to get a sermon out of this movie. Um, So if if you're at one of those extremes or you're somewhere in between, uh, have fun. We're we're going to have some fun with this one today. If you're unfamiliar with this movie, I I was surprised how many of you are. Uh, Basically, it's, it's made by National Lampoon. It's part of the vacation series of movies that star these two and and all of them. There's four of them. This was the second, I believe, of the four. Uh, There's Vacation, Christmas Vacation, European Vacation, Vegas Vacation. In all these movies, uh, Clark Griswold, played by Chevy Chase, is this idealistic family man. Everything he does is out of love for his family. He, he wants to be the hero of his family. He loves his wife, loves his kids, wants to give them the best experiences ever, whether that's a trip across the country to kind of a knockoff of Disneyland or a trip to Europe to see family or the ultimate Christmas experience by having all your family in one place. He wants to give them the ultimate experience, and every time it just falls apart. And if you are familiar with Chevy Chase, especially in the 80s and 90s, it's a lot of physical comedy, a lot of slapstick comedy, a lot of little one-off types of of jokes in here. But in Christmas Vacation, he decides he wants to do the all-American thing when the holiday season rolls around and have his entire family come and stay at his house for a month. His in-laws and his parents both show up with all their quirks and strong personalities. And before they even get in the house, his dad and his father-in-law are arguing and fighting over who gets to park their car in the garage and who gets the good bathroom in the house and who gets to put their back pills by the sink closest. And on and on, their dads fight and argue and their moms bicker and, and, and nitpick. And he decides that he wants to have this great family Christmas regardless. And throughout the course of the movie, some other family members show up, an aunt and uncle show up, and that one cousin shows up that we all have that we kind of want to forget about just a little bit that Clark gets to experience right here. Doc! Doc! No! No, don't worry about it, Clark. Little tree water ain't going to hurt him. Before we left, he drank it.
I did have somebody at 8 o'clock ask me if this was a menorah. <laughs> I said, well, no, I could see that, but no. But, uh, yeah, so, yeah, we've all got that family member, though, right, that shows up that we don't normally talk about when they're not around, but they show up, and like he says, you know, can I refill your eggnog for you, get you something to eat? drive you out in the middle of nowhere, leave you for dead. We have that person in our family that shows up, right? Clark wants the perfect Christmas. He wants that, that perfect holiday season, all of it, all the way down to the, the, the smallest detail. But it all starts with his idea and mentality that he doesn't want his kids to miss out on what he experienced. Now, this movie's from the late 1980s. So it's contemporary for the time, but he wanted his kids even to experience what he experienced when it starts with that first symbol of Christmas, his Christmas tree. And it starts with finding the perfect one right off the bat. Watch this one.
Do you think there's enough room for the angel? Oh, sure, honey. I have a little more trimming to do, but that won't be a problem. Ready? I give you the Griswold family Christmas tree. Whether it's finding the perfect Christmas tree or, or wanting to uh, go ahead and use his Christmas bonus that he hasn't received yet as a down payment to put an in-ground pool in his backyard or ultimately decorating his house with over 20,000 lights, Clark has amazingly high expectations for Christmas. He knows exactly what he wants it to be. And often I think we can be the same way, right? Like, like, we have high expectations of what this season should be. We, we talked about a couple weeks ago, for so many people, this is the best time of the year. And because of that, we want to kind of let it show in what we do. Like the Christmas presents that we buy, we want it to be a little better than what we bought last year. And we want to wrap them perfectly. They've got to have perfect corners, perfect edges, perfect seams. The, the foil paper has to shine just a little bit more. Our Christmas candy has to be a little richer and a little sweeter than any other time of the year. Those cookies have to be perfectly decorated. Our houses have to be spotless. Any parties or events that we do have to go off without a hitch. And everything has to be perfect. That's our thought this time of the year. And I don't know about you, but for me... Uh, growing up, Christmas was always my favorite time of the year. And, and growing up, for me at least, Christmas started after Thanksgiving. Now, of course, it starts after Halloween. But, but it was always that, <clears throat> that kind of tradition. We would have Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving night, they'd always show Home Alone and It's a Wonderful Life on TV. We would watch those, and it's like, boom, okay, now we can get the lights out. Now we can put the tree up. Now they're going to decorate Main Street downtown and turn those lights on, and we would Christmas shop, and you'd hear music playing everywhere that you went. And it was like this buildup in everything that we did. Even the Christmas songs that we would listen to had to be just a certain version, right? Like, we don't want to hear somebody else's version of this song. We want a very specific version. Like, if you're going to play Blue Christmas, it better be from Elvis. Don't waste my time with anybody else, right? We all have those ideas as we build up to Christmas season. But for me, it was always kind of funny because we would have our Christmas parade and our stuff at school, and, and we would have uh, my, my mom and dad's workplaces would have Christmas parties, and, and we would build it all the way up to Christmas Eve at my, my dad's side of the family, and come home and have Christmas morning and then Christmas at my mom's side of the family for breakfast, and by lunchtime, it's like, oh, now it's over. It's like kind of like the balloon popped, and now, now what? Now we've got that awkward few days of, okay, is it time to take the tree down, time to put the lights away? Now we're just staring at cold weather for two months for no reason. I mean, it's like suddenly it was a little bit of a letdown, right? Christmas, I think, can become a letdown if we're not careful. And in this movie, what we see is Clark with such high expectations, such detailed and intricate plans, and everything just falls apart all around him because of stuff he cannot control, despite the, the, the fact he thinks that he can't. So kind of like we've done in this series, we're going to take a couple of lessons out of this that will help us, I think, navigate a busy, chaotic, sometimes frustrating time of the year alongside of our just daily walk with Christ in general. Two things we can learn from the great American hero, Clark W. Griswold. And here's the first one. Don't think that you have to be in control of everything. That's our first lesson we're going to take is don't think that we've got to be in control of every situation in life. That's our 
default mode sometimes is think that we have to have the wheel, we have to be in control, we have to be making decisions. Not that we have to be in charge of everything, but if we're involved, we really want to at least know what's going on so we can have some sort of control over it. Clark realizes very early in the movie that he doesn't have nearly the control that he thinks he does. Watch this. you all right like you never have somebody pass you on the road and you've got to pass them right back that's literally never ever happened to me I can tell you that uh, I, I know one thing I have no problem with the way anybody else on the road drives so long as they drive the way I want them to and I'm probably not the only one who has that but we think about this because often this time of the year we want to be in control of situations, and, and, and we get frustrated when we aren't. We get, get kind of let down when we're not. Uh, it, it can lead to really just some overall disappointing moments with our lives. We set ourselves up for disappointment because if we don't have control, we're going to nitpick every detail. And especially right now, we're, we're just setting ourselves up to be let down in a, in a way. 
Maybe this time of the year you get burned out from the extra stress of all the things that you've got to do and all the extra work that you put into, and maybe it doesn't go the way you want it to or you don't get the recognition that you were hoping for. That can lead to some burnout or some letdown. Maybe your, your expectations are too high for other people and they don't help that much, or if they do, they don't help the way you want them to help, and that frustrates you. That lets you down maybe a Christmas project or an event that you're helping with. You really wanted it to be special and great, and it was maybe like a C minus, B plus kind of thing, and you're like, oh, I guess that was good. Maybe, maybe it's just a letdown for you. Maybe it's frustration. I know sometimes just the busyness and the crowds of people can cause frustration and almost an anxiety that can come over people. Uh, several years ago, Jennifer and I went with um, her whole family to Silver Dollar City for Christmas. And I, I grew up going to, to Silver Dollar City for Christmas and loved it. All the lights, all the, 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 the smells and the sights and all of it was it's very special. But this one particular year we went and I swore I was never going back. Because from the time we turned off the highway... So we got in the parking lot was about an hour and a half. It's two miles. You know, it took us about an hour and a half. And I'm not making this up. We get inside. It was elbow to elbow. You couldn't move your arms. Like it was just a crush of people. I don't have any claustrophobic issues, but I did that day. I'm like, I just want out of here. I, 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 need, to, I need somewhere else that I can go. We like to be the masters of our own domains. We like to be the controllers of our fate. But that's not what God has for us. A couple weeks ago, we, we talked about the movie Elf and how through the midst of some chaos, Mary was able to find joy. And today, we're going to look instead at Joseph. We talked about Mary, we're talking about Joseph and his side of, of kind of this first part of the Christmas story and see this from his perspective. Mary, when, when she was told by the angel that she was going to become pregnant, she leaves and goes and spends three months with her cousin Elizabeth. And she comes back then at least three months pregnant. You kind of know how this works, right? When you first find out that you're pregnant, nobody really can tell. Three months in, you're probably starting to get a little bit of a bump. It's going to start to show very quickly. She's not going to be able to hide this. And it's going to be obvious to Joseph that something is wrong. Because Joseph knows a couple things here. Number one, he knows Mary's betrothed to him. She's promised to him. In this culture, that meant she belonged to him. She was almost kind of like his property. And he knows, number two, this baby is not his. So, so Joseph is running through his possibilities here because in this culture, it was a very shame-oriented culture. And if Joseph was found to have been with Mary before they were formally married and she was pregnant because of him, it would have brought shame and dishonor to him and to his entire family. The only thing he can do instead is throw her under the bus. And he's legally within his rights to do this. He's fully justified in divorcing her and letting her take the shame and wear the scarlet letter, or having her put on trial and ultimately, most likely, put to death. He's fully justified in both of those rights. And it says that he was considering what he should do. Going through his mindset, what he should do with this, here's the conversation that takes place for Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. It says, Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." 
When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. Again, Joseph is fully within his rights to, to do whatever he wants to do. But it really sounds like he's struggling to make this decision. He's trying to divorce her and make it quiet so she's not shamed too. I think he knows that's probably very difficult. That ultimately she's going to be shamed, he's going to be shamed. It doesn't say this, but I just kind of use some conjecture here. I wonder if Joseph really struggled with this. I know I struggle with decisions. I struggle with big decisions that are made. Sometimes when the answer seems obvious, I'm questioning, God, is this really what you want me to do? And I've told you this before. I think I told you a couple weeks ago. I'm very good at standing here on this stage and telling you all to trust God when you're making a big decision and have faith. I'm very bad at actually doing it on my own. It's just one of those things. I want to weigh all the possibilities. I want to go through all of this. But I have a feeling for Joseph, he was able to really lean in and trust here. Because Joseph had a contentment in his life that ultimately led him to accept what the Spirit was saying to him. And that contentment that, that he had, we can have as well too. To get it, it's actually very simple. Contentment, I, I say this, contentment will come in your life when you realize that God knows your life better than you do. When God knows your plan better than you do. God knows you because God created you. God knows how you're wired because God's the one who wired you that way. God's the one who made you and put a plan in front of your life, and he knows that. I just picture Joseph here wrestling with this decision to make, trying to decide what God really wants him to do, what he wants to do, what what he hopes comes out of this whole situation, and the Spirit coming to him and just telling him something very similar to what God spoke to the prophet Isaiah When he said, do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Just kind of had a feeling Joseph was getting some kind of a reassurance there from God. I find myself often as a dad telling my kids either what to do or what to not do. Dads, you probably can relate to this. Moms, you probably can relate to this too. We tell our kids often what they should do or what they shouldn't do. Like Elsie. Elsie's in this mode right now where she wants to learn new things. She's terrible at actually taking the time to practice them. So I'll tell her, she's she's learning violin right now. Elsie, you need to practice your violin. You need to go do that. Amelie just kind of drifts in and out, my second grader, on when she's listening or not. So there's many mornings we're getting ready to leave for school. Amelie, go put your coat on. It's 25 degrees outside. Yes, you have to wear one. Titus, my four-year-old, it's a... Take your pick on what you're telling him that particular day. Often it's, Titus, did you wipe when you came out of the bathroom? (laughs) Why do we say these things to our kids? It's not because we want to nitpick. It's not because we want to dictate and boss them around and like we get some sort of pride out of them doing what we tell them. No, it's because we know what's going to happen if they don't listen. I know what's going to happen if Elsie doesn't spend time practicing. She's not going to get as good as she could otherwise. I know what's going to happen if Amelie doesn't put her coat on. She's going to freeze. I know what's going to happen if Titus doesn't wipe. I don't need to finish that sentence. You kind of know where I'm going with this one, right? Sometimes as parents, we know what's going to happen if our kids don't listen. Why would it be any different with God? The God who created us, who wired us, who put a plan in front of us, knows what will happen if we don't do what he tells us to do. And I think about this because often we're trying to be in control of our situation because we can at least trust the situation if it breaks down while we're in control because we can kind of steer the ship, so to speak. 
If something throws us off course, we can correct that. If we've given God the wheel, we don't know where he's going to steer it next. If we've given somebody else the wheel, we don't know what's going to happen next. So I think in those moments, we've got to step back and remember the words that God spoke through Isaiah. I am with you. I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. You don't have to be in control of everything. And for some people, that's very hard to hear and it's even harder to put into practice. But I can just tell you, it will help your frustrations. It will help your burnout. It will help your disappointment. It will help you because you're going to learn to lean in and you're going to learn to trust. That's our first lesson from Clark Griswold. Here's our second lesson we can learn from Clark. It's that you should learn to adapt and do life on the fly. Just hearing that statement, for some of you, you're cringing. Learn to adapt and do life on the fly. If you follow through the movie, it, it jumps you know, several days at a time, and every time Clark wants to do something special, it falls apart. Every time he wants to do something, even when he finishes decorating his house, he can't quite get the lights to come on. They're blowing breakers, and, and his 20,000 lights re require backup nuclear power to come on. Every time something happens, it falls apart, but he finally gets his moment. Christmas Eve, they get to sit down as a family with his parents there, with Cousin Eddie and his wife Catherine, and their very dysfunctional kids, and by now his aunt and uncle, who were delusional, have shown up. And they get to sit down at the table with the Norman Rockwell setting for the perfect Christmas Eve dinner, and then this happens. Amen. 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 <sighs> Catherine, this turkey tastes half as good as it looks. I think we're all in for a very big treat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Save the neck for me, Clark. <laughs> okay, Eddie.
And if you've seen the movie, it just goes even worse from here. The dog takes off and wrecks the table. Uh, his, his uncle Lewis and Aunt Bethany go into the other room, and because all the tree water is gone, he lights the tree on fire, and Clark gets another tree, but there's a squirrel inside it, and it runs amok throughout the house, and everything falls apart, and Clark ultimately has a complete mental breakdown that we kind of wanted to show, but it required way too many edits before we could show it to you all in here this morning. And it ultimately ends with his Christmas bonus that he thought was going to be this big, massive check being a one-year membership to the Jelly of the Month Club that Cousin Eddie said is the gift that keeps on giving all year long. It fell apart because he thought he was in control. He tried to have it all planned out, and it just didn't work. See, I'm, I'm all for planning things out. I'm not the best planner in the world, but I understand that it's smart to know where you're going and what you're doing next. And for some of you, it's like it has to be down to the absolute detail. But I, I found in my life and in my own experience, I can't do that. I can't plan everything down to every detail because ultimately you drive yourself crazy thinking of every possible detail, of every possible scenario. Because there's always a potential situation that you're not expecting that's going to come up, and then the question is, what do you do next? I've been blessed to work with some very good planners, and it works well for me because I'm not always the best one. But I worked with one in particular, and we were a part of a group, and one of our things was to put on a watch party for Monday Night Football, and he wanted every possible detail planned out. He's like, what do we, what do, we do? I said, you go to the store, buy some bags of chips, buy some dip, buy some ice, buy some Coke and Dr. Pepper. What happens if this happens? So then you go to the store and you buy more ice and you buy more Dr. Pepper. It's like he, he was almost panicking because of all the possibilities of what could happen at this party. And I'm like, we're just there to watch a football game. It's okay. You don't have to have every detail planned out. In Acts chapter 16, we see Paul as he's navigating through these missionary journeys that he was on. Paul had a plan. Paul was a, a Pharisee. He was set to go beyond the Sanhedrin. He had a trajectory in life that he was following that was going to be a great spot for him growing up as a Jewish person. But ultimately, he started following and listening to the Spirit instead. And Paul still had an idea of what he wanted to do when the Spirit took him someplace, but he followed the Spirit. And sometimes he would stay in a place for two years. Sometimes he would stay for two months. He said, I, I'll stay when the Spirit tells me to stay, and I'll leave when the Spirit tells me to leave. At one point along this journey, he plants a church in a place called Corinth, and he writes a couple of letters to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says this, that though I'm a, uh, I am free and I belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. You following so far? <laughs> to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. Then I love this part, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Paul had a plan, but he's saying my plan pales in, comparis uh, in comparison to what God has for me, what the Spirit wants me to do, and I will float on the wind of the Spirit to accomplish that. Often we have a plan, we want to follow that plan, and it it's hard for us if we deviate or get knocked off of that. But trust requires flexibility. 
Flexibility requires trust as well. And it requires trusting God to put your next step in front of you and to show you what it is as you're taking it, not before. It's actually kind of an element and a requirement of faith. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, that faith is the assurance of what we cannot and do not see. Faith is believing and trusting in things that we can't know, that we can't see. So when it comes to being flexible, I, I, I put it like this, flexibility is a sign of trusting the gifts that God has given you. It, it's a sign of trusting in how he made you and how he wired you. We, we did a series a few months ago on finding God's will and how ultimately that boils down to trusting that he knows us better than we know ourselves. And I look at this because God has, has wired me in different ways, he's gifted me in different ways, and he's not gifted me in certain ways. In those areas where he has gifted me, I have to learn how he wants those used. Preaching is a good example of this. Every, everybody who preaches does their approach to sermon writing a little bit different. Brad and I have very different approaches in how we do this. Every preacher does. And you'll get tips from different ones saying, well, here's how I do it. Maybe you should give this a try. And it may work for me. It may not. It just depends on how God has wired us. But some preachers, if you give them a 30-minute heads up, they can get up on stage and just wing it and preach something that is beautiful and it's rich and it's full of doctrine. Some people need hours and hours to prepare a sermon. I always think about this because my wife gives me a hard time sometimes that she calls me a procrastinator. And it's because I tend to write my sermons late in the week. And it's not because I'm waiting till the last minute. It's because I kind of need that pressure of a deadline. I need it to kind of help me focus and hone in because when I start sermon writing too far in advance, I go in a million different directions. I'm just trying to think through this on, God, where do you want me to go with this? And this one passage depending on which part of it I, I lean into and highlight, will dictate where I'm going. And so, God, where do you want me to go? And I've found myself at times when I write a sermon well in advance, I cannot leave it alone. I'll nitpick it. I'll pick it apart. I'll rewrite it. I'll rewrite it over and over and over. Sometimes I just need to trust that God has given me an ability and run with it. Because despite my best plans, sometimes I might set aside two or three days to sermon write. I don't always get those days. I don't always get those hours. Sometimes somebody comes by and needs to chat. Sometimes there's an issue with, with us on staff. Sometimes I've got to go be a dad instead. I've got to deal with my kids or, or be a husband instead. Or Sometimes I just don't feel well. And it wrecks those hours that I had carefully carved and put in there. Maybe you've got the same situation in your job or in your life. You've got certain hours, which let's be honest, that's the one thing we all have in common, is the amount of time we have in every single day. We set aside a certain amount of time or hours because we only have these few hours to get such and such done and then we're not able to do it because something comes up, because a meeting runs long, because there's a situation. Maybe just you wake up on the wrong side of the bed and you're in a bad mood and you just don't feel like dealing with that today. How can you learn to trust God when your own plans get thrown out the window? Again, I'm all for, for making plans but we have to learn to not be rigid in those. Sometimes when you're a little too rigid, you're unable to get out of your own path. And when you are knocked out of your path, you find yourself frustrated or maybe lost or confused. Kind of like if you're trusting your phone to lead you where you're going on your maps. It works great as long as there's a strong signal, but what happens when you get out someplace and the signal wanes? Suddenly it tells you you need to turn about a half a mile after you were supposed to turn. It just is a little bit slower in catching up to you. 
This is where we learn to let go and to trust God. Again, not to say you can't make plans, but trust God through the making of your plans. When I was a kid, my mom put a, a, a scripture kind of in my heart that stuck with me that she gave me all through high school, through college, as I started ministry, on and on. It's a very famous passage that maybe you've had, maybe your parents gave to you. But Proverbs chapter 3, where it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and don't depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all that you do, and he will show you which path to take. That, for me, has helped me navigate so much, especially where it says, don't depend on your own understanding. doesn't mean I can't trust in where God has given me the confidence to follow his will or to lean into the gifts that he's given me, but ultimately to rely on him. Ultimately, to follow and focus on him, to learn to trust him more than I trust myself. See, too often, I think we put ourselves up for disappointment, for frustration, for, for all sorts of anxieties this time of the year, especially because we put too much on our own plates and we get overwhelmed by the stress that comes with it. We get worked up if things aren't good enough or aren't perfect or, or they, they fall a little flat or maybe our plans just get pulled out from underneath us. Maybe what we really wanted to do doesn't even get to happen. We're so focused on how we do Christmas that this time of the year we can lose sight of the point of Christmas. We love the movies, yes. We love the music. We love the, the, the Christmas treats, the decorations. We love all of that. Some of you are even kind of sick and twisted and you like to go shopping and deal with the crowds while you do that. We love all of this. But if you really want to avoid the stress. You want to avoid the letdown, avoid the disappointment, and avoid the unrealistic expectations that Clark Griswold dealt with. If we want to do that, we need to remember at the core of all of it that this is all about a baby who was born in a manger in a humble little village just outside of Jerusalem. And that it was about a baby who was born who would one day die as, as the angel told Joseph, who would save his people from their sins. Christmas is all about Jesus. It's that simple. It's about a simple man who was born to simple parents who grew up to be anything but simple. He was God in the flesh. John chapter 1 tells us that he came to earth to dwell among us, that God became man. And the most heartbreaking part of that story in John 1 is that he tells us he came to his own people, but his own people didn't recognize him. He came to put on flesh so that we would, so that we could relate to him, so that we could recognize him and learn to trust in him more. And that's my prayer for all of us this Christmas season, is that we would find and recognize who he is. Because when we do that, we will learn to trust him more. The more we trust ourselves, the more we follow our own path, the more we realize that leads to destruction. And it leads to hurt, and it leads to heartache. Finding God, trusting God, that's what Christmas ultimately points us toward. Here's a takeaway for you today. It's simple and probably for some of you very, very hard. For the next, let's just start with two weeks. <laughs> be okay with not getting your way. This should probably be a, a, a attitude that a lot of us have year-round, but let's just start for the next two weeks. Be okay with not getting your way this Christmas. Learn to trust God instead. Learn to trust that maybe if something doesn't happen the way you wanted it to, it was because it wasn't supposed to happen. 
And I can tell you this too. I'm one of the world's worst at somebody telling me that and me telling them, I don't want to hear that. (laughs) But learn to trust in God. Learn to find him. Learn to hear his voice. We've got a series coming up at the beginning of the year. We're going to learn about that a little bit more. Learn how to listen for his voice through what we do, through how we approach him, through how we pray, through how we approach him. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your son. God, we're grateful that he humbled himself where he would step out of heaven and come put on our flesh with our limitations that he would become one of us so that we could find him. We could trust him. We could follow him. God, just as those first followers did that first Christmas morning, God, I pray that we would seek him out, that we would look for him. And God, if there's anybody here who doesn't know how to do that, that we could walk alongside them. We could point them to you. We could show them to you. God, I pray today for everybody across this room, knowing that all of us at times are going to deal with frustrations and deal with with burnout and deal with just anxieties. God, help us to always lean into you, to learn how we can trust you when we don't see you or we don't hear you, but we can learn how to trust you anyway. God, we're so grateful for your son, Jesus. We pray today in his name.